Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke, Luke chapter 2. And um, we're going to be considering this morning our second character. Last Sunday, we started the characters of Christmas. We looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And um, this Sunday, we are looking at the shepherds. We are considering the experience of the shepherds at the time of Christ's birth. Now, this passage, Luke chapter 2, is famous for many reasons. It's very familiar. It's a birth narrative. But it's also famous because of a song. A famous song called Gloria in Excelsis Deo, uh, a song that you will hear sung in the malls and the elevators, in your home and in your friends and face spaces and places all around you. And literally the translation is glory to God in the highest. And uh, we find this in verse 14 of the passage we're going to be reading. And so I just want to jump already to verse 14 that we will read. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, because the song is about the first part, glory to God in the highest, often we can overlook the second part of verse 14. And verse 14 actually begs the question, what is this peace? What kind of peace is this? I mean, the, the, the implication here is this baby that the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest. This particular baby who's going to be born in a stable in Bethlehem is going to bring peace on earth. And the question is, what kind of peace is baby Jesus bringing that is so transformative? What is this peace that causes angels and all creation to go glory to God in the highest. And so we're going to be reading the passage under three main frameworks. Firstly, we're going to look at facing the facts, then facing the fear, and then face to face. So facing the facts from verse 1 through 7, chapter 2, in Luke's gospel, we read the following. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So this is quite a pilgrimage. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Well, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, pregnant Mary, betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The first seven verses of this very famous birth narrative come with Detail, specific detail, lots of detail, lots of information, specific facts. And the reason there is detail upon detail, fact upon fact, is because Luke is doing it intentionally. 
What we have here is a contrast between verses 1 and 7 and the rest of the narrative between the facts and the feelings. All the feels come next. But right up front, he wants to just lay down the facts. And it's in a sense in which Luke is saying, let's just put aside all the emotion attached with the coming of Christ for a second, and let's just get a little bit rational about Christmas. Because, you know, in any family, it can get a little bit irrational at Christmas time. But he's saying, let's get a little rational. Let's lay aside all the warm, fuzzy feelings for a minute, and let's contemplate the facts. Luke is wanting to show us right up front that the Christian faith, that the Jesus that we're going to read about here, that the Christian faith is the Jesus of history. This isn't a Jesus of a legend or of a myth or even of a story or of a fairy tale. Luke wants to root it in history. Why? Because it's true. Because it's the facts. It's verifiable. And Luke's point is this. You cannot separate the Christian faith from historical events. You cannot separate the Christian Jesus from the historical Jesus. They are the one and the same. And so what are some of the things he points out? Well, we, we read of the emperor of Rome at the time. The emperor of Rome was Caesar Augustus. Octavius would, would be his more uh, familiar name. And he issues a decree, and it was not just any decree, because notice the wording, Luke says that all the world should be registered. That's how far the reach was of the Roman Empire, that all the known world should be registered. What was this all about? Well, actually, it was all about taxes. Not much has changed. It was all about household taxes, and this was well documented, not only in the Bible, the very Bible that you have, this is in there, right? But it's documented in other documents. It's documented in other historical accounts. It's verifiable. Thank you, Luke, for putting it in, because we can compare document with document, and you know what it gives us? It gives us dates, and it gives us times, and it gives us people, and it gives us places, and this is so good because why? He's going to tell us about Jesus, who is God, come in the flesh. Is this myth? No, no, it's history. It's history. So we read about Caesar Augustus, and we know that this was between 27 BC and 14 AD because that was the time that he ruled, and that's exactly when this decree went out into all the world. And furthermore, Luke wants to tell us that there was also a governor in Syria. I mean, that's kind of like a throwaway statement. I'm kind of wondering, what are you doing? He says, you know, at the time, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And, and again, it's because some of the people who would have been reading this at the time were alive during the first century, which means they were children when this actually happened, and they would have remembered the trip, the pilgrimage. Because you're not jumping in a car, you're going by foot or by animal, cattle. And, and, and this was a big thing, to go, to leave everything you have, to go back to your hometown. The reason you've, been, you've moved is probably because of work, economic reasons. And so you're leaving your work, your job, your home, and you're going back to your place of birth, and you've got to be registered there because of taxes. And so this was a grievous thing to do. This wasn't a fun trip. This wasn't a holiday. And the children would have remembered, and they would have read about this. We remember the governor Quirinius. 
just like any other dictator, we remember them. And then he goes on and he says that it was all about Joseph and Mary too, because they had to go from Galilee in Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, to the town called Bethlehem. Oh, and guess what happens there? Ah, Jesus is born. Oh, but this was prophesied. He wasn't to be born in Nazareth. I mean, if of all places, Nazareth was the, was the center. You know, Nazareth was, was, was where all the action was. But Bethlehem, can anything good come out of Bethlehem? And this is where Jesus is born. And Luke goes on and he says that Joseph traveled with his heavily pregnant wife all the way to Bethlehem. And there they find no room. Even though it's their hometown, they've gone back home and there's no room, no place. So they find a barn, and in this barn she gives birth. Baby's room definitely wasn't prepared. The walls weren't painted, the crib wasn't ready. They just wrapped him in whatever was lying there. They wrapped him in swaddling cloths, used, not new. Where would they lay him? Well, they laid him in a feeding trough. That's what the manger was. It was a feeding trough. It was for the cattle to feed. There's not much that's sentimental here. It's just facts. Actually, when when you read the first seven verses, Jesus' birth gets one verse. The political landscape, the geographical landscape gets six verses. Luke is trying to say something to us. It's interesting, Luke does this also in chapter 3. Have a look at this, the very next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and it's it's a tough read this, but we'll give it a go. In the 15th year, not the 16th, not the 14th, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, all right, so what's that? We've got places and places and places and spaces and people, all right? Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Archeria, and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Verse 2, during the reign of the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Gosh, Luke, what are you trying to say? Face the facts. This is when Jesus came. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. This is historical evidence. And it's not just in the Bible that we find these facts. It's outside of the Scriptures too, in other ancient documents, in other historical records. You can go to the British Museum. There they are. You can see it for yourself. Jesus Christ, born in a manger, with all of these evidential documents, places, times, spaces. Finally, if this was a man-made myth, if this was written by some corrupt religious officials. You would never have written the shepherds into the story. Why? Because you've got on this end, you've got emperors and political rulers, and you've got these strong and powerful men. But who becomes the first witnesses to the Jesus of Scripture? Not the emperors, not the rulers, not the people of power, people in position who you would think would leverage the good news to go to places far and wide. No, no, it's the lowly shepherds, the outcasts. It's the shepherds who become the first witnesses. The shepherds are the people that no one would have trusted. These were not the, good, the best options in terms of first witnesses. And once again, what we see here is that we must face the facts. 
because you would only write it in if it really happened, and it did. So what do we learn? Well, let me just first read this quote from Richard Balcom. He says this concerning this. He says, No other faith in history has so extensively crossed the cultural divisions of humanity and found a place in so many diverse cultural contexts as faith in the history of Jesus Christ. So we face the facts, but what's actually going on here is the rest of the story is about the shepherds at the time of the birth of Jesus. So not only must we face the facts, we need to face the same fear that the shepherds face. So let's read on from verse 8. He goes on and he says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The question is, why are the angels rejoicing and the shepherds are terrified? The shepherds are terrified. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. I think that's enough to, to give anyone a fright. But that's not all that happens. And the glory of the Lord, that word there is the Almighty, the glory of the Creator God, the glory of the Almighty God, shone around them. And they were filled. They weren't just afraid. They were filled with fear. I mean, let's just, let's just think about it. The shepherds are doing what they do, shepherding. They, they, they're kind of just all about everyday business. They're out in the fields at night, minding their own business, and suddenly the light of the glory of God shines upon them. It's dark, it's nighttime, they're sleepy, and the glory of God appeals. This, this, this isn't just any glory. This is the glory of Almighty God that we read of in the Old Testament, so often referred to as the Shekinah glory, which often appeared either in a cloud or in a fire or as blazing, blinding light. And in this case, this blinding light appears around them and they are shaking in their sandals. Why? Because this is the glory of God on earth. This is the glory of God breaking into earth. It's, it's a picture of what God is about to do in Christ. That the glory of the eternal Son of God is about to come into earth. And so they have a prophetic moment where it's almost like Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Remember that? Remember the glory cloud of God comes upon Sinai and Moses is trembling 
because there is thunder and lightning and smoke coming out of the mountain because God Almighty has descended upon the mountain and all creation feels the weight of the glory of God. And Moses takes a message to the people of Israel and they're gathered at the foot of the Mount of Sinai and Moses says, if you even touch the foot of the mountain, you will die. Don't you dare come. It's no wonder these shepherds are terrified. This isn't just a nice party trick. This is the very glory of the Almighty God descending upon them. And here's the point. The point is this, that human beings cannot be in the presence of God without a mediator. If you don't have a mediator between you and God, you die. This is why Moses was saying, don't even touch the mountain. Don't come up. Only I've been allowed up because Moses is a picture of the future Christ to come who will stand between us and God. We, we, we cannot just come into the presence of God. I don't know if you've seen this quote out there recently, but it's, I think it's brilliant. The quote goes like this. I'm not sure I put it in. I don't think I did. But it says this, the sun the sun, the, 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 the bright ball of fire in the sky, the sun will burn your eyes out from a distance of 92 million miles, if you get that close. And yet you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its maker. We, we, we don't just casually stroll into the presence of God. The, the sun will burn your eyes out at 92 million miles away. This is, this is remarkable, and, and the message to the angels is there is something happening. A mediator is about to come as a baby, and he's going to bring what? The message from the angels is he's going to bring peace, and now we know what this peace is. It's not international peace. It's not a peace treaty. It's not just a little bit of peace in your heart. No, no, no. This is peace between man and God. The, the gap that, that, that exists because man cannot just come into the presence of God. It's impossible. You will die. You need a mediator. And this mediator is a baby. He's going to be born as a baby. He's going to be put in a barn in a feeding trough. And he will bring peace. He will mediate peace between man and God. We sing this at Christmas. Charles Wesley got it right when he said this of the Christmas hymn. He sang, peace on earth Mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. That's this peace. The problem is there was no reconciliation. And Jesus is going to bring reconciliation so that you and I can actually exist in the presence of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot live in the presence of God. And so the good news why the angels are rejoicing and why the shepherds are terrified is because they know they have no right to stand in the presence of God. And apart from a mediator, none of us do. And so what do they do? Well, they face their fear, how? By going face to face. Look at this. Verse 15, he goes on. When the angels went away from them into heaven, so now the angels go, the shepherds said to one another, they know exactly what they need to do, let us go over to Bethlehem 
and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I'd love to know more about what they said. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds head off to Bethlehem. They head off to Bethlehem, and what do they see? Face to face, they see the baby Jesus. They see the gospel. They see the good news What did the angel say? Look at again, verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news of great joy. And what do they see? As they look, as they lay eyes upon baby Jesus, they see a mediator, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what's being offered here is not what must we do. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not, okay, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and then you can walk into the presence of God. No, no. Actually, we can't do anything. We cannot earn our way to God. A baby needs to come, God in the flesh, and he's going to grow up, and he's going to die in our place for our sins as a perfect substitute, as a perfect mediator. Why Why couldn't he just come at 30? Have you ever thought about that? Could he not just come for a long weekend? You know, start Good Friday, he ended on Easter Sunday. I mean, why didn't he just come for a long weekend? Why does he have to be born as a baby? Well, the, the answer is because it's not just his perfect death that saves us. He could have come for a long weekend if it was only, if all he needed was to die for us. No, that's not the gospel. The whole gospel is Jesus, yes, needed to die for us, but he also needed to live for us. He needed to live a perfect life. He needed to live like one of us. From birth all the way through to his death, he needed to fulfill the law and the prophets. He needed to live a perfect life so that he could be the perfect mediator so that we can live in the presence of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news of great joy. He goes on to explain it in verse 11, this day in the city of David, a Savior, there it is. What is this good news? What is this peace? It is saving peace. It is good news. It's the gospel of peace that we have a Savior. Again, this is, this is the imagery of Mount Sinai, that unless you have a mediator, you will die and you need saving from a holy God. And here he says he's being provided, the mediator is being provided, and he will save you from death so that you can have eternal life. And so I want to close with this last thought, and that is what we read here in verse 12. It's really amazing. It says, and this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A sign. The word there, sign, can also be translated symbol. It's a symbol. It's symbolic. This baby lying in poverty. Abstract poverty. 
Jesus. Could it be? Could it be that this outward poverty is symbolic that he is taking on our poverty? That Jesus came to take on our humanity, not only our humanity, but our poverty, our, our spiritual poverty, the position that we were in. We were separated from God. We were strangers from God. We were under the wrath of God. Jesus comes as the perfect substitute, and he stoops low. And he's born into poverty, and he will die on a cross in poverty. Why? For us so that we might take on his perfect life and righteousness. Some of the early church fathers interpreted this passage this way. Ambrose, one of them, says this. He says, you will, you will find no baby in Bethlehem wrapped in Tyrian purple. That was the custom of the day for princes who were born to, to kings and kingdoms. But no, there's no purple for Jesus. John Chrysostom he said this, surely if God had so willed it, Jesus might have come moving the heavens, making the earth to shake, shooting forth thunderbolts. But such was not the way of his going forth. His desire was not to destroy, but to save and to trample upon human pride from its very birth. Therefore, he's not only man, but a poor man. His outward poverty at the point of his birth, is a sign of his poverty on the cross as he takes upon himself our sin and he gives us his righteousness. All of his riches, which means his righteousness, not his money. <laughs> All of his riches, his righteous life, his perfect, sinless, spotless life, he takes upon himself our sin and he gives us that wealth. Poverty in birth, poverty on the cross, why would you do this? Because he's the perfect mediator. And apart from this, we cannot ever come into the presence of God. This is the good news. We have a way in. Jesus made it possible. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that by your spirit, you would stir our hearts with such joy that, that, that we would be in awe and wonder of you this morning, that this good news, it truly is good news. Thank you that, Jesus, you are the perfect mediator. And thank you that your birth is a perfect picture, that you were born into poverty and you died in poverty, but yet at the same time, it's the greatest exchange that we receive your wealth and you take our filth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We stand amazed at the cross. We stand amazed at your birth. We are so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful that the sovereign Lord Jesus laid down his riches, came as a vulnerable child to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. Oh, Lord, may we, may we sense the fear that those, those shepherds felt at the time of the angels. May, may, we, may we experience both, both the ecstasy and the awe, knowing that you are a holy God and we don't just stroll casually into your presence. Thank you that Christ is our mediator and apart from him, we have no hope. 
But Jesus, we thank you that you've made the way. The good news is Christ has done it. He did it all. It is finished. We thank you, Lord. Amen. We're going to take communion together. Um, We're going to ask some people to come and help us hand them out. If you could just take the cup and the bread and just hold on to it. Um, The music team is going to lead us in a beautiful song. So let's just allow this song to minister to us. So this is just a moment for some ministry. Um, Let let God the Holy Spirit minister to you. Um, And then we'll all share in communion together. I'll come back up and lead us in that moment. Thanks, team.
Can we just see, is there anybody who doesn't have a cup or bread? I just want to make sure everybody's had an opportunity to get. Great. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He was with the disciples and he broke the bread. It was a sign. It was a sign, a symbol of what would happen to his own body. And he said, take, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Jesus was fulfilling the Passover meal. The Passover would be fulfilled in Christ, substituted by the finished work. We're no longer looking forward to the Passover lamb. We're looking back on the finished work of Christ. And so let's take the bread and let's eat together. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for your body, Jesus. Thank you for your perfect life. We thank you so much that you didn't come for a long weekend. Thank you that you actually fulfilled the law in every part through your perfect, perfect life. And then you gave it up for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your blood. You took the cup that night and you said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it for the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, outside of you, there is no forgiveness for sin. You are this perfect, spotless lamb. And it's only in your blood and through your blood that we have access into the presence of God. And so we drink of this cup today, looking back and remembering it is finished. Let's drink together. What a wonderful God you are. Thank you, Lord, for the facts of history. Thank you for the revelation of yourself in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our perfect mediator and you bring us into the presence of God. Thank you that we can stand and not only just stand, but we can rejoice with the angels saying, glory, glory be to God in the highest and peace on earth. Thank you for this peace, peace of reconciliation that we are now friends with God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.